Matthew, picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. You'll find an outline on page 5, some additional reading as well on page 6 later on if you're interested. Hear now the word of God. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Anybody know where that's from? Maybe the young kids don't, but it's the 1980s sitcom Cheers, right? Well, this last week I experienced a bit about what that was like. I was out of the metro area trying to get our car fixed at a mechanic out in the country. And I'm there, and I'm noticing everyone knows each other's names. They're coming in. They're talking about community life, softball. Not only that, they're coming in bearing their soul to the mechanic. They're sharing their burdens. A woman whose husband, I believe, has died, has arthritis, she has cancer, and she says to the mechanic, I'm lonely. A man who's about 40 talks about his 72-year-old father-in-law who had cardiac arrest and he helped him and now he lives with him and they're sharing this and they know each other and they trust each other and they're bearing burdens together. One of these men I find out goes to a a really solid gospel-believing church in that area. We all want to be where somebody knows your name. We are made to love and to be loved. The church is such a place, loved ones, where those who have been loved by God, by the grace of God, are given by the Spirit of God what we need to love each other, to really know each other. And what that means is it's messy. We're broken. We're bruised. We're weary. And we come together to bear each other's burdens and to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to bring those burdens to the cross. We come today to see what Matthew reminds us as he's been telling us already in chapter 11, that you who are weary and heavy laden can find rest for your soul in your Savior. Matthew wants us to see Jesus, but more than that, he wants us to trust Jesus. He wants us to love Christ because we have been loved by him. So we see today the problem first, that Christ the servant, who will not break a bruised reed, comes to solve. Why is this good news? The context of Matthew 12 
reminds us that Jesus is opposed by Pharisees who last week we saw want to kill him. As one man says, often in the New Testament, it is the moral and religious people who are the biggest enemies of Christ. Why? Because they are blinded by Satan in their spiritual pride. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. And in today's world as well, likewise, many say, well, I'm a good moral person. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need Jesus. The Pharisees are modeling that kind of heart. Romans 1 speaks of the wrath of God revealed against mankind. Romans 2 says, you religious people have the same evil hearts. The opposition to Jesus comes from what's called original sin. That there is a fundamental perversion in our nature. We weren't made that way, but when Adam fell, in Adam's fall sinned we all. Our hearts are evil. It's not just external circumstances or education or environment that make us wicked or that can help us because our heart is spiritually diseased. We have a sinful nature. We need a Savior. That's really clear in how the Pharisees are dealing with Christ, isn't it? How will Jesus respond to this threat? Matthew says he withdraws, not out of cowardice, He's courageous, but he's deliberate. He came, and he knew the timetable in which he came would ultimately lead to his crucifixion, the cross. But that time wasn't yet. The early church often follows that model. Persecution, expansion. Stephen is martyred. The church goes to the nations. Jesus also withdraws because of judgment. In particular, on the Pharisees. He's removing the gospel from them. Much like God said in the days of Israel, when their heart was hardened, the prophets were withdrawn. That's happening. Jesus, in humility, is going off to the periphery, but he is continuing to heal, continuing to show compassion. Even as he tells those he has healed, don't tell anyone yet who I am. And that's a strange verse. But the rest of our passage today unpacks that. Because Jesus then goes in to the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Kids, do you look in your Bibles and see where Jesus is quoting from? To tell us about the Gospel? Isaiah 42. And that sets up the problem, not only with the Pharisees, but with idolatry. Isaiah is prophesying in 700 B.C. He is telling of what will happen. Israel has broken the Mosaic Covenant. The curses are coming down upon them. They will be exiled to Babylon. And the word behold is really key. Turn back to Isaiah 42, if you will, because we understand the fulfillment of this only in the context of it. In Isaiah 41, 24, it says, Behold the false gods. Idols, you are nothing. In Isaiah 41, 29, it says, Behold the idolaters. Their deeds are nothing. It's like wind. It's confusion. It's an abomination. This is the first commandment. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
the problem of idolatry is not a prehistoric problem with stone images that people worship. It's a heart problem. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. In all of our idolatry, we gravitate toward whatever we think will make us happy. And when the idol doesn't deliver, we tend to respond how? Anger, self-pity, pouting, escapism, fear. Ezekiel 14 says it's an idolatry of the heart that shows our drift from God. The New Testament uses the word desires, sinful desires, to capture the same thing. First and tenth commandment. We read the Ten Commandments today. Describing our human lust and craving for something other than God. Our root problem then is not social or intellectual, but it is that we keep going to false gods for false salvations, to cisterns that are broken that do not satisfy over and over again, loved ones. If we were on a desert island, our hearts would still make idols, but we're not. The influence of the world combines with our hearts. The world is a vanity fair. The shapers of our culture combined with the tendencies of our hearts. We live in a fallen, perverse world. And what I want to do for the next number of minutes is explain in application one way Just one way this is happening around us. This is not the only way. Perversions are being celebrated. The world has gone mad. Sanity begins to look suspect. There's a new podcast out this week titled Christianity and Liberalism based on a book written 100 years ago by a man named J. Gresham Machen who says theological liberalism is a tradition that denies the virgin birth, has an unbiblical view of sin, a different view of the cross, the resurrection, the church, the Bible, what happens after you die. It's not historic Christianity. Back then, there were pressures that theological liberalism was putting on people. Today, there continue to be pressures. Many are calling both within and without the visible church for a reevaluation of biblical views of life. Think of the idolatry and evil in our world and the unborn children that are being murdered in abortion. Many are questioning what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Here's where I want us to camp a bit. We are in a month that many on the activist left have called Pride Month. LGBTQQIP2SA. It's near exhaustive, but it's not. One man writes, I started getting Pride Month emails in early May. One was from a children's online boutique. You've gotten this. You've seen it. Rainbow arrayed products to help children celebrate the mantra, love is love. Pride Month is a family affair. Make your children an advertisement for sexual freedom and gender fluidity. That stuff comes. Full stop. The rainbow is God's promise. It's given in the covenant with Noah. It's a promise of God that he will not flood the world again. Back to the application. 
Pride Month is a pervasive religious holiday, paganism. It's all over the stores. It's in Target, in Kohl's, in Old Navy, in Starbucks, Hannah Anderson, pride pajamas in a post, North Face with a drag queen pushing people to get outside. It's found on kids' shows, on Disney+, Plus, on streaming platforms, on Twitter. Brands change their logo to a rainbow version. It's in kids' books at public libraries. It's in drag shows at the library. It's in drag shows at Six Flags Over Texas. It's in public schools. It's to young kids. It's evil. It's wicked indoctrination. It's shameful. It exposes children to what is perverted. It is in San Francisco where the sheriff and police and fire department salute the pride flag. It is on the homepage of employers. It is on billboards, at sports events. A baseball player is released because he calls it for what it is. It is evil. You could go on and on and on. It's madness. Calling evil good and good evil. It's a pagan false religion. Love is love. That's the mantra. But love only has the integrity of its object. Loving sin is satanic. Satan and his minions want you to love it with idolatrous confidence. We live in dark days. Pride. Just think of that word. Pride is an aggressive approval of a heart attitude that God's word condemns all of our hearts. Every sin comes from the root of pride. To be proud in our natural instincts and desires is to go against God at full velocity, to put one under the threat of eternal judgment, to choose my way over God's way. We are in days where we are seeing the rise and triumph of the modern self, Carl Truman. The pagan anti-gospel says you will find true happiness by embracing your natural instincts and finding affirmation from others in them. That leads to fleshly captivity. The modern self is an untethered self looking within, not without, for meaning and purpose. We are awash in a world that refuses to believe that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Are male and female distinctions rooted in given biological realities? Yes. Are man and woman designations to choose based on feelings and identity? No. Can men become women or women become men? No. God created mankind, Kevin DeYoung says, as a sexual binary. He created you as one or the other. The biblical definition of God creating man and woman in his image is not about being hateful. It is about being biblical. This is the apex of creation. And Sinclair Ferguson says, God made them man and woman. Marriage and family then is where the enemy is attacking. It should not surprise us. The biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman is not hateful. It's not being mean. It's being biblical. Marriage is pre-political. No government invented it. No government can redefine it. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. God has not left it to us 
to define. Romans 1 is what's happening. God giving them over to lust. Romans 1, God gives them to a depraved mind. It is the mind of the devil. People approve and practice these things, Romans 1, 32. Pride on display. Come and approve this, the culture says. The expansion of this is a sign of mankind defying God, of God giving that society to its lusts. It's an act of God's judgment. How we should tremble and pray for all who exult in Pride Month. How we should reach out to them with the law and the gospel and pray that God would bring them to Christ. Behold the idolatry of our hearts. Behold the idolatry of ancient Israel. Behold the idolatry of present-day Babylon in the world we're in, a Romans 1 world, but don't stop there. Behold, same word, behold Emmaus Road. Behold Twin Cities. Not a pride parade, but behold your Savior. Secondly, who is the identity? What is the identity of this servant? Back to Matthew 12, 18. Who is Matthew talking about here? The servant of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it says Israel, Jacob, the offspring of Abraham. So the servant of the Lord is clearly who? Israel. Now Matthew says, chapter 12, this is applying and talking about who? Jesus. What's Matthew saying? Jesus is Israel. God entered into a covenant with Adam, his servant, Adam was given a commission to guard the garden. He broke the covenant, plunging us all into sin. God enters into a covenant with Israel, the nation, my servant. They were to do what Adam did. They didn't do it. God enters into a covenant with another servant before time began, chosen by the Father. This is a part of the servant songs of Isaiah. They're all throughout 42, 49, 50, 53. God is saying, behold, my son, behold the answer to the idolatry of your hearts. Behold the one who can truly take away your sin. Behold the Savior of the world. Meditate on him. Trust him. Look at him. Behold his love for you. Behold his grace for you. The one the Father chose in eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, The Son comes because he is chosen. You are chosen in Christ, who is the chosen one. Behold, my Son, my servant, in whom my soul delights, the Father says. The central aspect of this part of Isaiah 42 is this. Although the world may despise Jesus, the Father is pleased with him. He says, the father does, look at my son on the Mount of Transfiguration, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm delighted in him, the father says at the baptism of Christ. Why is the father delighted in his son? Because his son is perfectly obedient. The father loves his son before the foundation of the world in a way that is beyond our understanding. But there is now an inexhaustible leap, as it were, 
of love the Father has for the Son, Eric Alexander said. Kind of like you dads, when you watch your son in a moment of great joy, you might say, that's my boy. A leap. That's what's happening here. Jesus obeys the Father perfectly, the suffering servant. He lays down his life in humiliation and shame, in my place for my sin, bearing my judgment. The Father is pleased with him. And if you trust in Jesus, beloved, the Father is pleased with you in the same way he is with his Son. The Spirit has united you to Christ. He is your elder brother. God himself is pleased with you in Jesus. God is not angry with you, Christian. He delights in you as he delights in his Son. The more we realize this, the more we are humbled, the more we realize we need God to uphold us, the more we go forth, not in our strength, but in God's strength and grace, the less we want to do my thing. This has a profound impact, the love of God for you in your life. The Father says, I'm pleased with my Son. Not only that, but the Spirit. Do you see how this is a Trinitarian passage? The Spirit comes upon the Son. The Spirit prepares a body for the Son. The Spirit conceives the Son. The Spirit is there at the baptism of the Son. The Spirit is leading the Son into the wilderness when he is tempted. He does miracles, Jesus does, by the Spirit. His life is laid down by his own will. He raises it up again, and the Spirit makes him alive, 1 Peter 3. Behold the identity of the servant of God. Third, what is his heart for you? You might think, well, I just have this kind of general idea of what Christ has done, but what does he feel toward you? Just as Isaiah is contrasting the servant of God with idolatry, so also Isaiah is contrasting the servant of God with an imposter. In the context of this passage, There is a man raised up by God, Isaiah 45, called God's anointed, who is a pagan king named Cyrus of Persia, who is in the providence of God the immediate fulfillment of these servant songs. How? Because God raised up Cyrus to release Israel from captivity in Babylon to come back and rebuild the temple. Cyrus. That is intentionally pictured for us in a way to contrast Cyrus and Jesus, loved ones. Cyrus, who runs roughshod over people, who steps on people, kids like you step on an ant or crush a grasshopper. Cyrus, before whom the people trembled in fear. Cyrus is the kind of king you hear about on TV and on the internet and social media all the time. There are Cyruses and have been throughout the history of the ages. But now new things are here. Jesus the servant comes. What is his heart? It is gentle and lowly. The culture rages against those who are gentle and lowly in heart. The culture mocks them. 
the culture calls them weak and worthless. Matthew 12, 19, quoting from Isaiah 42. This servant, see how these are all negatives? He won't quarrel. He won't startle you. He won't shout you down. He won't self-promote. He won't be in the streets hungry for publicity. He won't come barking out orders or swaggering. He won't dominate. He won't be quarrelsome. He won't bully people. He won't intimidate. He won't be abrasive. He doesn't come in pride. He comes in humility. He doesn't say, look at all I have done and boast in me. He humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. The Pharisees hate him. He is angry with them. We saw that last week. But he doesn't shout them down or quarrel with them. No wonder the Pharisees hated him because he was so unlike them. And he's so unlike every sinner until we are changed and saved by the grace of God. Until we are made regenerate by the Spirit of God. Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Psalm 51. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. The pictures of brokenness are vivid right here. A reed, a cattail, something that in the fall kids is leaning over in the marsh, used in that day to make a shepherd's staff or a pen or a spear, but something very weak. Nobody would name a sports team the rumbling, bumbling reeds. Why? Because... You're not going to have any sort of, it's kind of like naming a team Gopher, sorry. Gopher doesn't kind of show a lot of energy. I, I know we have Gophers. I love Gophers. But a badger, that's going to snarl a Gopher. I'll move on. A bruised reed is worthless. It's hanging over. It'll collapse. When you see a bruised reed, kids, you break it, you throw it in the fire. You're done with it. How about a faintly burning wick? One ember that's left in a fire. You're going to douse it with fire, you're going to stomp on it, and you're done with it. Jesus will not break or snap a reed. He will not snuff out a wick. Why? Because Jesus is gentle. Hebrews 12. He deals gently with the ignorant and wayward. He's a conquering king who crushes Satan's head, who will come in judgment against his enemies one day, but in his first coming, he is gentle toward those who are broken and contrite. Why does it matter? Because we are all bruised reeds. Every person is a bruised reed. An unbeliever is a bruised reed that God may bruise to bring them to Christ. A Christian is a bruised reed, recognizing my sin my need of a Savior, my sinful condition, my indwelling sin. We are bruised because God loves us. He chastens us. He doesn't punish us. He's patient with us, and he conforms us more into the image of his Son. We're bruised in a way that dissolves our pride and self-sufficiency. We're bruised in a way that we are humbled and made teachable. 
The Spirit of God is at work in us. We have suffered much. Today you might say, I'm dealing with blows. I'm at the end of my rope. I have nothing in the tank. I'm feeling guilty. I feel God doesn't love me. Jesus came for those who are weary and heavy laden. If we don't see that we are bruised, God may humble us to show us that we are bruised. The good news, God heals bruised reeds. The gospel of Isaiah 53, another servant song, says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He bore the bruising in my place. He takes my sin. By grace, through faith, by the Spirit, I receive his righteousness. He blesses the bruised. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The bruised look away from themselves. They look to Christ. They rest in him and his finished work alone for your salvation. He comforts you, beloved. He is kind to you. He is compassionate to you. He helps you in your doubts. He calms you in your fears. He doesn't come when he sees you bruised and break you and throw you and condemn you. He supports you. He fans into flame a coal that's just about dead by his spirit. He builds you up so that you can be strong and take courage in him, not yourself. He takes your brokenness and heals you. He takes you in your loneliness and gives you his presence. He takes your sin and he untangles the web of sin by dying for that sin and by sanctifying you more and more. And the gospel is for those who are bruised. You say, I have idols of the heart. I have secret sins I don't want anyone to know. The idolatry of the world is too much. Come in your pride. Come with your anger. Come with your lust. Come and cast it on Jesus, knowing that he died for those sins. You say, I am attracted to people of my own sex. I struggle with this my whole life. Is this natural for me? I have a relative, a loved one, who embraces homosexuality. Beloved, it is not unloving to expose pride or anger or self-righteousness or homosexual desires and actions as sin. It's what God's word says. Sin is our condition and the actions that follow. The impact of the fall on different people is different. Everyone struggles with different sins. Every one of our emotions and affections and our mind and our bodies impacted by the fall. Homosexuality is the outworking of the sinful nature, as is pride. As Christians, we must not demonize those who embrace homosexuality. We must not heap abuse on them. We must not use cruel language or hateful language or harmful language. That's not the way of Christ. We struggle with different sins until glory. And Burke Parsons of Ligonier says it so well. I want to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The same passage in Ezekiel that speaks of idols of the heart says, repent, 
Turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from your abominations. Turn to the God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Christ sets us free from slavery to self and to sin. Christ's finished work means we can have our sins, and as Christians, we do have our sins forgiven. Past, present, future. The sins of your closet. If you are struggling today and say, I don't know who to talk to about these desires I have that I don't want, Talk to me, talk to an elder, talk to a trusted Christian friend, talk to a trusted counselor, talk to someone that won't crush you, but will treat you gently in the way that Jesus treats us. Beloved, Jesus is gentle to us that we, by his grace, as we are aware of our weakness and sin, might become gentle toward one another. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. One follows another, follows another. Gentleness, meaning I'm not apathetic and I'm not panicking. See those two extremes? Gentleness. I don't want to crush someone who comes to me who is struggling because I'm a bruised reed. When we realize this, this will give us, by the grace of God, patience with each other that naturally we would want in our flesh to be very impatient with and raise our voice with and have no time for, right? You know a good teacher. A good teacher, when you struggle, doesn't say the same thing louder or faster. A good teacher comes to you and listens comes to you and understands your weakness because that teacher had to learn that thing too. Beloved, we are here to strengthen one another, ministering to each other. Matthew wants us to have the same heart for those who are out there, as we might think, for the outcast, for those who may not be like us, for those who might struggle with different sins than us, for those who might not be socially acceptable, for those who might not be of our class or of our kind. He wants us to have that compassion that Jesus has. And for those who don't know Christ, if you're sitting here today or watching, Jesus will treat you gently in your hopelessness, in your idolatry. He is compassionate. Cast your sin. Cast your burden on Christ because finally, fourthly, he will bring justice to victory. This Savior who is gentle is a king who reigns. Justice is the work of the king in Isaiah's day. The servant of the Lord is the king over all the earth who establishes God's reign over all the earth, who expands God's kingdom to the nations of the earth. He is crucified to reign, loved ones. He is resurrected and ascended and reigning and returning. And that word, he is just, three times here in Isaiah 42. The truth of God's word is just. On the cross, God's justice and righteousness and love are seen in the work of Jesus. But in this particular way, 
Do you long for all wrongs to be made right? For a world where there's no more evil and suffering, no more indwelling sin, no more pride on display in my heart and in the culture, a world where there aren't wildfires and smoky air, all these natural calamities under the providence of God are a call to repent. Wildfires, tornadoes. It shows that we are bruised reeds, that we are smoldering wicks. It shows that Christ will return and heal it. That one day all things will be made new. A world where relationships will function as they were meant to in the beginning. Where we will love and enjoy God perfectly and love one another perfectly. Every tear removed. No more idol worship. We can't make this world and bring it about by our sweat. But the Lord comes one day to bring justice perfectly at his second coming. The nations hope for this. The ends of the world are longing for this. The gospel has already gone forth and continues to go forth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every skin color, every culture, every language, Swahili and Spanish, English and Russian, Dutch and German, you name it. A people for God is in every people group. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. By his blood, he has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Emmaus Road, have courage today. Emmaus Road, have hope today in the gospel. Come boldly today, brothers and sisters, bruised and broken. Bring those burdens to Christ. And he will give you rest. Amen.